One of today's snazzy sponsors is Quest Software, your go-to for everything Microsoft. Move, manage, and secure Active Directory, Office 365, and much more. Visit quest.com slash datanotspod to find out more. Quest.com slash datanotspod. There's so much to do and learn out there. Sheesh. We're always interested in bringing on folks who have navigated the choppy, dark, shark-infested waters of technical engineering. And hey, guess what? In this episode, we'll explore the career path from tech support to cloudy architecture, along with some nerdy opinions on how to cloudify your cloudification of the cloud. Wow. Howdy, I am Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter. And with me is my co-host who loves his bagel sliced like bread, you dirty animal, Ethan Banks, at EC Banks on Twitter. And this is the Data Nuts Podcast. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packetpushers.net. Was that you on the, the Twitterverse that had like the sliced bagel bread thing that's like going all over the place now? It's I, I thought that was funny. I didn't actually know what you were talking about, so I must not be subscribed to the right accounts to oh my see gosh. such memeage. Yes. Yeah. Apparently you can slice a bagel like bread and that has caused global panic. That is like a number one issue right now in the world. So it's, it's, I don't know. I'm very topical when it comes to how you slice carbohydrates, Uh, but let's move on to something far more interesting. Let me introduce our guest today. His name is Bill Gerling. He is an amazing cloudy guy. Welcome to the show. Who are you and what do you do? My friend? Hey everybody. Uh, I'm Bill Gerling. I'm a cloud solutions architect and, uh, Essentially, what I do is uh, I specialize in cloud integrations with regards to, you know, the software and products that our company manufactures and maintains. And I'm lucky in the sense that I get to go out there and and just see the the cool things that are happening out in the world, the problems that people are trying to solve, specifically with public cloud integrations. Uh, And I explore ways that we can extend, integrate, and automate our product in order to help people do things in a more cloud-native manner. That is a very like. It's, is that rehearsed? Did you did you ha- do you have to say that a lot? Uh, uh, I do say something similar a lot, but I'm I'm not really one for rehearsals. I'm usually shooting from the hip, as you'll uh, soon learn. Excellent. <laughs> you will fit in well on this show. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So where I wanted to start was uh, a background for those listening to the show. Bill actually reached out a couple weeks ago. He heard one of the shows and was like, "Hey, I'd like to throw my hat in the ring. I'd like to talk tech a little bit." And I was like, okay, absolutely. We love it when folks do that. Please feel encouraged to reach out to at datanauts underscore show on the Twitters and let's see what we can make happen. And, and Bill, I was looking through your LinkedIn because now everything's available in, in the world and, and it's, it's also fun that Microsoft owns that. And uh, I was looking through your career trajectory, if you will, the journey, if you will. And uh, it's interesting to see now you're working in the cloud, doing a lot of things with automation and integration. But uh, what were those humble beginnings? I see Geek Squad on there, and it certainly made me kind of smile. And, and I was like, oh, crap, I forgot about them. Yeah, I did work at the Geek Squad. I've actually got a, got a photo of me rocking the, the black skinny tie, the white top, and the black slacks. And uh, we used to you know, hook up the machines for people and let the, the folks out in, uh, in India run the diagnostics and then try and, try and sell them memory and CPU upgrades to to resolve their technical woes. That was, that was a long, long time ago. Fun story there. The, the folks that, uh, that actually do the diagnostics when you hook those machines up and, and let the remote folks run them, we call them uh, Johnny Utah. Like the, uh, wasn't that in mnemonic, right? <laughs> it was. Yes. Yeah. Yay. I passed my nerd test. All right. That was an early tech job for me. So I grew up, you know, playing mother goose fairy tales on 
like a 386. Uh, I can remember the black and yellow monitors. So uh, I, I was into tech pretty early on. My dad was a uh, was traveling around Europe doing computer stuff with punch cards back in the day. And uh, I swore up and down when I came of age that I would never let my hobby, which was building computers, playing games, mucking around on the Internet, uh, you know, never using services like Napster or LimeWire or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I swore that I would never let my hobby become my profession because I didn't want to ruin it. Kind of like, you know, the car guys don't want to (laughs) become mechanics. And so I started studying psychology uh, at a community college in Florida Uh, and just working, doing, like, tech support on the side. And I I got through a few semesters and really did some investigation into what a psychology major with an undergraduate degree earns and what their their life is like, and I quickly pivoted back towards letting my hobby become my profession. (laughs) (laughs) So it it was so much money that you're like, I I don't want to ruin myself with these buckets of gold coins. That's right, yeah. I didn't think that I had the the intellectual fortitude or the uh, uh, ability to, to stop those riches from making me a bad person. So I, I elected to go into a more public service oriented profession. So, so then tell me about how you transitioned into, I don't know, you listed as failure analysis engineering. That feels like a pretty big leap. Yeah. Well, it, it's also an overstated title, which is something pretty common in the tech world as well. Who does that uh, on LinkedIn? No way. <laughs> so engineering in, in my mind is a, is a bit of a stretch there, but uh, so I did the stuff in Florida. So I worked for uh, a company that uh, made consumer grade uh, antivirus and firewall and anti-spam products. Uh, I did end user support there, you know, the old uh, ma'am, could you please click here? And, and they ask left click or white right click. Uh, I, I started there as a seasonal worker and uh, ended up going on full time there and then decided I was going to move back up here to the Carolinas, uh, halfway back to my original home state of Connecticut. And when I got here, I just threw my resume out there and got picked up for this company that did logistics work focused on the Dell facility that used to be in Winston-Salem. And um, I got brought in there to do contract work, essentially testing components like memory, motherboards, optical drives, et cetera, et cetera, that failed off of Dell's production line. And so we were a representative of the manufacturers, and we would try and ascertain if these parts had actually failed. And if they had failed, did they fail because they were defective or because someone had hit them with a screwdriver while they were installing components into one of these desktops or something? And so failure analysis engineering was a fancy term for uh, looking for capacitors and stuff that are knocked off of PCBs and trying to trying to pin the financial obligation on on Dell rather than on the manufacturers that we were representing. Okay, so so failure analysis engineering was really uh, you know, looking at the component level and trying to find out who to blame. And then there's more tech work you did. You were in the army. You were a systems architect, uh, and then you ended up with kind of more currently uh, converged infrastructure architect as a title, and then cloud solutions architect as a title. Can you talk through those architecture roles? Yeah, these have been some of the best gigs that I've had the, the pleasure of, of having throughout my career. So uh, I, I was a sysadmin and a database administrator for a little while here at a, at a company in Greensboro. And through that role, I really started to get into VMware and virtualization in general. I started following you know, Mr. Nash on Twitter uh, and he, he, his blog posts were actually what, what really got me into, into messing around with virtualization. And uh, I was lucky enough to, to meet the CEO of a, of a local VAR here who kind of took me under his wing and, and let me come on board and start to do some 
managed services work at, uh, at his organization. And, and I just kind of grew organically in that role. I was really, really interested and passionate in uh, data center virtualization and user computing, data center networking, et cetera, et cetera. And I was given a swing to kind of take on a territory pre-sales engineering role. And I've never looked back. I mean, it's, it's really been, been a great experience for me. I love to talk to people. I love to interact with, you know, customers. I love to try and solve problems. And I love technology. It's a really unique combination of things that you get to do in one of these architecture roles where you get to talk to people and interact with people. You get to kind of hear their business problems. And then you get to try and translate those business problems into technical solutions. So how technical is your architecture role? Because uh, I've, I've actually had an architecture role and also had engineering roles, and I, I kind of see the difference between those two, but it does vary by organization how many or how much technical responsibility you still have as an architect versus there's some architects I know who can't even log into equipment. Their, their role kind of ends at the whiteboard and PowerPoint. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's a really great point. You know, when I, when I first came on board to the, the VAR here in, uh, in North Carolina and, and started doing the architecture work, it was really, really deep technically. We were a small shop, and we were known locally here in Greensboro and Charlotte predominantly for having engineering talent that rolled up their sleeves and really would get deep into the nitty-gritty. So, you know, I, I could go and deploy most of the solutions that I architected, which uh, sometimes I had to do. And, uh, you know, carrying on through my role today, my role today, I would say, is even more technical than that uh, converged infrastructure architect role was when I left it in the sense that uh, I am I am focused on a specific set of technologies, predominantly, you know, public cloud and, and automation type technologies. And so my job is largely to take the the product and the software that we support and find ways to build integrations to solve customer problems that maybe we can't solve right out of the box, or uh, maybe a customer comes to us with a unique environment and we kind of need to do things differently than we would in another customer's environment. So sort of some of the assumptions that we've made in terms of the way the product works or functions don't necessarily apply to this new customer's environment. So uh, I, I'm you know writing a lot of scripts. I am interacting with our engineering organization, looking at, looking at source code, trying to figure out how we do things and why. Uh, going back and making suggestions to the way the the product should be developed going forward. It's a it's a deeply deeply technical role. I'm on a very technical team, and I'm humbled to to get to work with them because I learn a lot every single day. Well, and I think in the cloud role, especially as quickly as public cloud is changing, uh, just looking at AWS for example, new features coming to market from them all the time. If you were hands-off and too distant from it, you wouldn't be able to keep up with the latest and greatest that you might need to know to correctly architect the solution. Yeah, and I mean, the stuff changes so fast that I have to keep Slack channels with feeds of features that are coming. Uh, I often find myself going to the documentation for stuff that I quote-unquote know just to validate that it hasn't changed, you know, in the 20 or 30 minutes since I last looked at it. <laughs> right. um, the, the pace of innovation in the public cloud space is absolutely astounding. And I really feel like it kind of breeds a different type of engineer. Like you can't just go learn this version of the product and know that if customer has this version of uh, whatever product or platform that, that your knowledge is good. You've, you've got to do your due diligence every time. You've got to check the documentation. You've got to be on communities, on Slack communities or on Twitter and, and always just kind of, validating your assumptions constantly, which is something we as technologists should really be doing anyway. 
Yeah, that resonates. I remember my UCS days. It was like, are you on 141J? I know that version. And now, you know, Amazon, it's like, are you on? Oh, gosh, you have 287 services all being iterated independently of one another. I have I have no hope of knowing even a fraction of all the services that are on there. So you do need like a Matrix-style plug in the back of your head just to stay current on, yeah, uh, how, on how, like your, your domain, you know? How many availability zones are in this region? Well, I don't know. You know, I knew how much it was last week, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Google it real quick right, right now just to validate because it could change in the blink of an eye. So, so Bill, I'm kind of interested in the the drive to move into those sorts of roles. You know, from from more of a, a physical type of world and kind of a, an on-prem product over to the cloudy world and automation. And you're, you say you're digging into source code. You know, what was the driver? Was it just a technology drove you into it? Was it a set of challenges you were trying to solve, or you're just bored? I mean, uh, help us understand that drive. Yeah, I would say you know, as with all things in life, there's a lot of elements to it. First and foremost, I was an infrastructure guy, and I was predominantly focused originally on you know the V plus C plus E stack, right? So think traditional three tier stuff that eventually became became V blocks and whatnot. And uh, there was a pretty clear indication towards the end of my time in that particular role that the traditional storage space was changing a lot, and it was shrinking, and it was mutating, and infrastructure as a whole was simplifying a lot. So these com- complex architecture gigs may not have been a- as necessary, and so I think part of it was wanting to preserve my career and make sure that I had value in the marketplace going forward. Uh, Additionally, I've always been a scripting guy. You know, I started out uh, my internship prior to becoming a sysadmin. I was doing like automation of QA testing through a test suite that was written using C Sharp. And then I was a DBA, so I was writing a bunch of T-SQL. And in my architecture role, I kind of started to miss that automation element. Now, I've never been a full-fledged application developer, so I would never call myself a developer, but I really did miss sort of the dev side of DevOps. And uh, cloud just seemed like a natural sort of inflection point. It was where the industry was going from an infrastructure perspective. It offered me the opportunity to to do a little bit more scripting and automation and and focus more on developer-type stuff. And so I figured, hey, there's a need for this. Uh, It seems like a smart thing to do. I'm going to take a swing at it and see what happens. One of the things that Bill said that stuck out to me was how he met someone who introduced him to this opportunity and then he dove in and it was a, you know, not the most pivotal and critical thing in his career, but it was a direction that he was able to take that because he chatted with other folks, he found out about that opportunity. And that brought to mind that networking with other people really matters because a lot of times it's not what you know, it's who you know, and that really makes a difference. That can be tough for us technical people that uh, tend to be a bit more introverted, but get out there, go to uh, some kind of a local tech meetup, meet some folks, find out where they're working and what the opportunities are, and maybe that creates the opportunity that you're looking for to move on to the next big thing in your career. What grabbed your attention, Chris? I think we're on similar wavelengths, Ethan. I was thinking about the value and, and the immense value, really, about being able to hold a conversation with a customer or a client or whoever you're working with to, to get at the heart of their very tangible business challenges and also their desired outcomes, what they're looking to do. I think those that can talk the tech, but also talk business and what you're looking to do as a company, they typically have the leg up on their career path as well.
One of our sponsors today is Quest Software, your go-to for everything Microsoft. In a nutshell, Quest takes the complex things about your Microsoft environment and makes them easier to deal with. For instance, let's say you're dealing with a move to cloud, or maybe a merger, or maybe you're doing both at once. What happens? With too much to do, you start making mistakes. You give out more permissions than you should because you got too much to deal with and sticking that user and that group and that OU wasn't the right thing to do, but it was the convenient thing and it lets you go back to writing that script to help you migrate accounts. Oh yeah, your scripts, the canned tools, some open source thing you found, you're stirring all this stuff together with a keyboard and a mouse and it's sort of working to get the project done, kinda, as long as no one else has to use it and the CSV files are in just the right format. Ugh, it's ugly. This is where Quest software fits in. With Quest, you can migrate without end user disruption. You can improve the migration process by using more automation and less roll your own and hope it works. And you can maintain a compliant internal security posture. No more over-permitting because you didn't have time to figure out how to do it right. Quest fits in when you're facing migration to a new SharePoint or you're migrating to a new Office 365 environment. You're consolidating AD and Exchange. You're securing Active Directory from insider threats and more. Quest has been doing this for a long time. They help manage 184 million AD accounts today. Plus, they've migrated over 95 million accounts and 74 million mailboxes. They have had time to get their software right something that Gartner recognizes about Quest, listing them as the only cloud office migration tool offering all 40 features and functions key to have. By the way, Quest isn't only selling software and hoping it works out for you. They also have a support team you can reach 24 by 7 by 365. And if you just rolled your eyes because you hate vendor tech support, Quest has been recognized eight times for customer support excellence and has a 93% customer service satisfaction rating. Odds are that if you do need to call Quest support, the experience is going to be pretty good. To learn more about Quest software, your go-to for everything Microsoft, visit quest.com slash datanotspod. One more time, that's quest.com slash datanotspod. And we thank them for being a Datanauts sponsor. Bill, it was lovely to meet you in the first section. Now, let's get into some of your strong opinions. And... I guess you, you've done a lot with both Terraform and CloudFormation and, and have a take on that. Can you maybe open up with your opinions on uh, on Terraform, what it's good for, not good for, and uh, how you found it fitting into your world? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm a big fan of both tools. I think that they've certainly got, uh, you know, their applicable uses within the market. And uh, ultimately, you know, most organizations are going to make a decision based upon which technologies they're using, uh, what skill sets they have currently on the team, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, my opinion is, is CloudFormation is, is a great tool to use uh, specifically if you're invested predominantly in AWS and interested you know, predominantly in provisioning and lifecycling AWS infrastructure. Uh, a particular strength of Terraform is that it's multi-platform and it's, it's sort of easily consumable in a multi-platform manner. So in Terraform, you can you can use these things known as providers. A provider lets you interact with uh, a platform or software stack or product or what have you. And uh, those providers are not even restricted to public cloud entities. So, I mean, there's a provider for VMware. There's there's a provider for, uh, you know, the product that I work with a lot, Rubrik. There's, uh, there's providers for all the major public cloud platforms as well. There's providers for IPAM systems like Infoblox and uh and even uh, platforms like Salesforce. And so if you're particularly interested in sort of 
provisioning an end-to-end infrastructure that isn't dependent solely on AWS, I think Terraform is probably a better tool for the job. The, the argument against Terraform being it does kind of dumb down what you can do to the lowest common denominator. Is that, is that a fair criticism I've heard or, or not really? I don't think that that's necessarily true personally. I'm sure that uh, you'll have some opinions to the contrary hit your, uh, your inboxes as soon as this goes live. But, um, you know, the provider for AWS is developed specifically to integrate with AWS. Uh, the provider for Azure, while it tries to be sort of uh, similar in terms of syntax and applicability to the other providers, so there is, you know, striving to be consistency across providers, it's still very unique to Azure. So you're not going to use the exact same constructs to provision infrastructure in AWS as you would in Azure. You still need to know both of the platforms, the providers, and you know their, their subsequent resources are all still tailored to the platforms that you're provisioning against. But what it gives you is the ability to have a single template where you can build, maintain, and lifecycle all of these things across platforms. And so something that I've heard in the past that I don't necessarily disagree with or don't necessarily agree with is that Terraform in some way lags behind CloudFormation in terms of service support on AWS. I've actually found, you know, the contrary on Reddit and, and the whatnot, where sometimes AWS will introduce services without zero-day support from CloudFormation. I've seen numerous gripes about that, whereas the open source community can rapidly whip together, you know, some sort of integration on the Terraform side of the house. And so, so I... I would say that's probably occasionally true, but it's certainly not always true or, in my opinion, even usually true. It does sound like, from what you're saying, Terraform's your go-to. Just It, it gives you that common template, and, and for your use cases, it's been plenty good enough, and you're suggesting even better than its critics would have you believe, you know, in that sometimes it's even ahead of the curve uh, when compared to CloudFormation. Yes, and you know they, they just released 0, 0.12, and, uh, you know, they've made some pretty big improvements there. Obviously, this is, a, this is a brand new release, and I'm sure there's some skeletons in the closet, as there is with all new software releases. But we get, you know, we get the ability to loop over things more easily in Terraform now. We get the ability to handle arrays quite a bit better now in Terraform. These are things that were lacking in both products up to this point and are things that on the CloudFormation side, you've still got to either use Lambda functions to accomplish or an overlay like Troposphere, which is actually another abstraction layer that you put on top of CloudFormation that dynamically generates and updates CloudFormation so that you can use these programmatic constructs. So I don't know. My personal preference, if I'm just pulling a tool out of the toolbox for any old project and I need some infrastructure provisioning, I'm probably leaning towards Terraform unless it's an AWS only thing that I feel like I can do quicker through CloudFormation. How about some other aspects of these different tools? Because you're right. I definitely did my homework. I went through the, the Reddit threads just to kind of see what the what the Holy War was all about. And uh, certainly the lag thing came up quite a bit, that uh, the natural inclination for someone is to believe, hey, you know what? Because it's an AWS feature, it's always going to be completely in lockstep with what the API is doing. And then the reality seemed that, well, it's it's its own service. It's its own tool set. And therefore, it's not going to release. They're not going to have an update for it every time some other service is updated. There's always going to be kind of a, a release cycle or a sprint that they're doing to to push code. And therefore, that's it, it kind of sounds like it would be true, but it's not necessarily the, the truth. 
right, so so other aspects of the tooling is it just easier to adopt? Is it better to scale? I guess those those came up quite a bit. I'm just curious your opinion on kind of adoption and scaling the tools. Yeah, one of the things that uh, is nice about CloudFormation is how easy it is to get started with CloudFormation, especially if you're coming from a more infrastructure-focused background. Like, literally, all you got to do is write a template. You know, it's either JSON or YAML, so uh, familiar syntax in terms of the templates. Uh, You know, Terraform is HCL, which is sort of JSON-esque, and I know that you can do true JSON as well, but we'll not even go there. But with CloudFormation, like, you just throw a template together, and then you can go into their user interface upload the template or drop it in a bucket and point point CloudFormation at the template. And then, you know, next, 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 apply, run. So it's 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 super easy to get started because you can just throw a basic template together and submit it to the service. On the Terraform side of the house, it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more like, like Git, if you're familiar with Git, which you both obviously are, where you build this text template and then you put this template on your system somewhere and then you run a command line utility in order to execute the templates and apply the changes, uh, at least in terms of the free and open source uh, version of Terraform. And so it can be a little bit of a heavier lift if you're not as familiar with those types of command line utilities. And then while the ability for Terraform to persist state, which CloudFormation can also do now, but one of the big things early on in Terraform was it keeps a local state file. You know, uh, we can pick up kind of where we left off and, uh, implement changes and like an item potent nature and all that. And for that state to not be local in Terraform, you've got to store that state somewhere, which means usually building an S3 bucket or, you know, an Azure blob container somewhere and then sticking that state file there on the AWS side of the house, you know, you've got to lock the state file with DynamoDB. And HashiCorp has generated a service now or created a service now where they will handle all that logic for you and you can just point it at their managed service. But Predominantly, you know, it's a, it's a little bit more plumbing typically that you've got to put together in order to get started with Terraform, whereas with CloudFormation, you can just drop a template into the service, you know, do most things UI-driven, next, 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 and you're off to the races. So I, w- I would say that's probably, especially if you're coming from an infrastructure background, a big, a big plus of CloudFormation. If you're very focused on AWS, it's easy to get started. We've been talking about standing up infrastructure and how to utilize all the programmatic capabilities that we're we're really taking advantage of with CloudFormation and Terraform. What's your take on configuration management? Is that those of us coming from traditional infrastructure, we we lived in that world of, of having to deal with various kinds of config management. Is that how does that translate into the public cloud? Is that still a skill set we need to worry about? So I'm of the belief that in order to do public cloud properly, you've especially from an infrastructure as a service perspective, you've really got to be leaning on automation. So public cloud espouses the fact that, uh, you know, you can have this like limitless scalability, this incredible resiliency, this simplicity and agility of consumption, and you can have cost savings at the same time. But then uh, customers will come in and they will just like lift and shift their big monolithic VMs into a pay by the drip model on AWS or Azure or GCP or whatever. And then they go, oh, crap, when they get a really large bill. And, you know, no one tells them, right? Like, no one, no one, at least generally speaking, people who just go and try these things themselves don't have anyone say, hey, stop, take a, take a break here, take a breath, and realize that while you're not having to worry about the power and the cooling and, you know, the operational elements of all the physical stuff that underpins what you're doing and et cetera, et cetera, those costs are represented somewhere. And you are paying for them when you move workloads up there. And so if you think that it's going to be cheaper and give you some 
monumental amount of agility when you lift and shift your workload as it is from on-prem into the public cloud, uh, you're largely fooling yourself. And, and so I, I think going back to your original question here that, uh, you know, configuration management tools, infrastructure provisioning tools, and also, you know, scripting are all like bare minimum requirements to really do public cloud properly uh, until you're ready to start consuming things in, in non-infrastructure as a service-centric models, at which point it does tend to get a little bit easier to realize the cost efficiencies. Moving to serverless or platform as a service, you mean? Yeah, and, and you know that has its own set of implications, which is if you've got applications on-prem today, you know, generally speaking, those applications have had their resiliency built in at the infrastructure level. So we rely on storage arrays to, to be redundant and resilient. We rely on you know, virtualization platforms to fail over our workloads and restart them in a failure scenario, et cetera, et cetera. But if you think about a service like EC2, for instance, there's no vMotion on EC2. And so some of these platforms are very opinionated in the ways they expect you to consume infrastructure. And lifting and shifting a data center workload up to one of these cloud platforms doesn't necessarily get you the cost efficiencies or increase your resiliency. You've really got to look at the workloads you're going to move. If you are going to lift them and shift them, you've got to look at, you know, what sort of level of the stack you've been depending on for resiliency and for scalability, et cetera, et cetera. And you've got to see if those consumption models make sense in the public cloud. And typically, in order to get a workload up there and really have it be in synergy with these cloud platforms, you're going to be relying on things like, you know, dynamic horizontal scaling, which is inherently going to kind of require you to have a configuration management strategy or the ability to write a script or the ability to use some, you know, cloud native platform service in order to, to attain that scalability, that resiliency and those cost efficiencies. It's, it's interesting to me when you bring up things like scripting and general automation, uh, only because, I don't know, for, for better or for worse, when I, when I did my undergrad on computer science and ultimately network engineering, you had to take, even in the network engineering course, you had to take classes on Java, JavaScript, and automation. And, and, and then as a systems administrator, knowing Bash and just general scripting, even if it was basic or you know, uh, just dealing with Windows systems, things like that, you just had to know that it was part of the job. And I feel like over the last, I don't know, maybe in the, the 2000s, it kind of dropped off. It was more about knowing how to configure things through a CLI and knowing how to plug things in together and less of going deep into systems. And partially, I kind of blame the vendors. They, they really black boxed a lot of their equipment. And the only way to interface through it uh, was, was through the GUI or some kind of very specific uh, domain-specific language. So do you feel like it's just kind of the pendulum swinging that we had those skills 10, 20, 30 years ago? We're returning to that because the vendor ecosystem is kind of being forced to change because of public cloud? Or am I just crazy? Did we never learn how to script and this is a new thing? Uh, no, I, I mean, it, it kind of becomes a it depends based on what background you come from as well. Like, it, I hate to draw a line in the sand, but I mean, we, we, we have to talk in terms of trends. And you look at the Linux sysadmins. And they, have, they seem to have a much easier time coming into a public cloud consumption model than the Windows sysadmins have. And that's because, and I was a Windows sysadmin for a long time. I was going to say, you're, you're, you're tiptoeing into some dangerous territory. I like it. <laughs> so I, I am certainly not saying one is better than the other. And there are a lot of Windows sysadmins there that have been doing things through PowerShell and VBScript and uh, you know, command line for, for ages and ages and ages. But I would say I also encounter a lot of Windows sysadmins who got complacent and who relied on 
you know, the product to have resiliency or automation baked in or the platform or the box it's running on to have, you know, this resiliency or this, this automation baked in. And so we kind of lost sight of what it really takes in order to automate things. And yeah, we can remember how to write a simple script to move some files around or whatever. But then you go and you look at the typical Linux sysadmin who has been writing shell scripts and probably writing Python or, or Ruby or, or whatever for ages and ages and ages. And then you drop them into a cloud platform like AWS where you're like, hey, by the way, you can you know run this script in Lambda serverlessly and here's how you pass it events and here's how you push data out of it. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is very, very familiar to me. Whereas, you know, some of the folks that have come from uh, a more Windows-focused background that have been doing less of the automation through through PowerShell and what have you, they feel that that is a, somewhat of an alien concept to them. And so there is a little bit of relearning that has to happen there. And again, this is not carte blanche, black and white uh, truisms across the board, but it is trends that I see. And, and that is why you know, a lot of the Windows folks are a little more comfortable in Azure because Microsoft has built that platform to accommodate that background a little bit more. You know, Ethan, my takeaway is about, I don't know, I think there's definitely many dimensions to consider when inspecting tools to apply into your environment. In some cases, I think the ease of use and ability to pick something up quickly may be important for learning about a new focus area or something you're unfamiliar with in the technology stack. And then once you've had that light bulb moment of clarity and you're like, oh, I kind of understand what's going on. I know more about my goals and I better understand this stack or this part of the stack. Then you could try the tools to see which one you like better. What about you, buddy? Uh, kind of, again, we're kind of on the same wavelength. I, I like this idea that Bill raised of Terraform being a common tool that would support multi-cloud because there's really a lot to be said for that approach. Anytime one tool can get a lot of things done from you, anytime one tool can get a lot of things done for you, operationally, that's a win. You have fewer tools to learn and to keep track of. I mean, how many tools do you want your team to have to know? Now, the, the objection to that is, well, you know, what if, Terraform in this case doesn't do everything that I want it to do because it's it's an abstraction layer. And yeah, that's a fair criticism. There's a trade-off with abstraction layers. But if the tool, that abstraction layer, is good enough, isn't that a good option? Always worth considering, in my opinion. Well, now that we have some cloudy opinions on the record... It's time to move forward into the future of technology. Imagine some jazz hands, maybe some glitter. I don't know. Uh, so I want to riff on a few topics. And the first one, Bill, is, is about multi-cloud at its heart. You know, we're talking about config management, which is, you know, third-party tools overlaid on AWS. I kind of get it, right? I understand that we need to treat our infrastructure in a declarative manner and try to programmatically control it as much as possible. Totally on board. I think that applies on-prem and the cloud equally. But this multi-cloud thing keeps popping up and everyone wants to realize the dream of multi-cloud applications that, you know, blue-green deployments across both, you know, both sides of the cloud, all that kind of jazz. Do you think that's going to become the standard and, and kind of what's the role of config management if we are going to this multi-cloud world? Yeah, so multi-cloud is, I don't know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of opinions out there in terms of multi-cloud and I think there's a lot of misconceptions as well. I mean, you think about the word cloud and how ambiguous that was. Uh, up until recently and still is in some ways. Well, let's talk about the misconceptions then. I'm curious about that. The canonical example is cloud is just someone else's data center, right? I have uh, that T-shirt. That, yeah, yeah. And and while it's 
I guess technically true on its face. It's it's sort of a live omission in the sense that, uh, yeah, maybe infrastructure as a service is just someone else's data center with someone else, you know, monitoring and managing and 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 passing metrics back through to you from the layers of the stack that they own in the shared responsibility model. But in its entirety, cloud is really someone else's data center with managed services laid on top of it that allow you to consume things higher up the stack without you having to administer the ancillary components beneath it. I mean, you look at services from AWS that, or, or Azure or GCP that allow you to feed in voice data and just get text right back out of it, or that allow you to put some parameters in uh, so that you can recognize an object in a video or a picture and you just get an event when that object is recognized. I mean, this is not just someone else's data center, right? This is someone else's data center with uh, applications and middleware and proprietary functionality laid on top of it to the point where you're truly just consuming a service. And so mm-hmm. so the cloud is just someone else's data center, in my opinion, is coming from a position uh, of someone that doesn't truly understand all of the capabilities of these public cloud platforms. And so just boils it down to the the lowest common denominator of what they truly understand. So that may be true if you're just like, hey, a virtual machine is a virtual machine, storage is storage. But you're saying kind of the PaaS and SaaS layers, that's where the real value is. And it's more about abstracting value from the services, which I don't think anyone really argue against. Agree. Hmm. And I mean, you look at some of the cool stuff that like AWS did at reInvent this year. I mean, they're, they're, they have a marketplace for trained machine learning models now. That isn't just someone else's data center. That's that's a brokerage at this point for for really really cool capabilities. That if I was to try and develop from the ground up, it even as an experienced technologist, I would probably have to go back to university in order to be able to just consume some of the stuff that they provide to you as part of the service. Well, so, so if that's true, then which which I, I don't think I don't think we can argue that they do provide those services. Then where does this multi cloud thing come in? Because I feel like multi cloud continues to be surfaced in conversation as a config management problem. Like, oh, if I just had, you know, Terraform everywhere and, and perhaps as a compute scheduling conversation, like Kubernetes being spread everywhere, more about how to schedule and run the workloads, not a whole lot of the services tend to come up or, or, or do they? The multi-cloud thing, I think, is, is definitely not just a configuration management problem. Like, like, I feel like that is largely solved. If you wanted to deploy an application that consisted of many nodes or many components across cloud platforms today, it's technically possible, right? It's easy through a tool like Terraform or uh, a tool like Terraform coupled with a CM tool like Ansible or whatever to provision those workloads ac- across platforms and to link them up. I mean, there's really cool stuff in the networking space from uh, Aviatrix, for instance, uh, their, their company I've been following. And uh, they can use Terraform to dynamically build in, build up and tear down VPN tunnels and stuff like that. And so you can you can very rapidly stitch together uh, these platforms and have workloads communicative, provisioned, and validated across them. I think the biggest problem uh, with regards to multi-cloud in that sense, like a single application spread across cloud platforms, is the cost models. You know, all of these platforms penalize you for traffic egressing out of the platform. And you think about the latencies between the platforms inherently, which is another thing that you've got to solve. It just... 
it becomes cumbersome from a cost perspective to, to truly provision workloads across these platforms and consume them at scale. So, Bill, looking to the future for companies that are – they want to go to public cloud and all they can think about is lift and shift. I'm just going to make happen in the cloud what happens in my local data center. That, that's not the future. You talked about that earlier. The expense of it all gets catches some people by surprise. So in the future, what does making the move to cloud look like? I mean, it looks in large part like any large migration of applications looks like, and that is truly assessing what workloads are where today, you know, how they have been provisioned, how they are maintained, how they are lifecycled and operationalized, and, and taking a good hard look at whether or not moving those things to a cloud platform in a lift and shift manner is going to be is going to be an effective way of doing things. Uh, it may not be cost effective. It may reduce the resiliency of the application to just lift and shift it to a cloud platform. It may be that that application is deprecated and going to get retired anyway, and the whole level of effort of moving it makes no sense when you could just let it die on the vine. Ah, okay. So you're making a point here. It's not a foregone conclusion that moving to cloud is automatically the right answer. You might just leave it on-premises uh, based on those criteria that you were just describing. What about folks that definitely want to move it to cloud? Is there is the thinking going to have to be, I need to break this thing up somehow, or I need to take the database portion and, and leverage pause instead? Uh, it used to be on you know Microsoft SQL on a Windows box that sat in my data center. Now I'm going to use uh, an Amazon database flavor. Is that kind of thinking, does that need to take place as well? That type of thinking absolutely needs to take place. I mean, if you're going to rewrite an application in the next year or so anyway, and you're planning to move it to a cloud platform, then I think that that you'd be foolish not to consider maybe, you know, containerizing this thing or figuring out how it might run on serverless or figure out maybe I could just spin the database off to PaaS and keep the application in VMs and maybe use auto scaling or something like that to make it grow and shrink dynamically. Those are definite considerations that need to take place because, those types of migration patterns, the refactoring and replatforming types of migration patterns are really going to give you the most agility, the most resiliency, and the most cost effectiveness when you move a workload up to public cloud. There are things that you will lift and shift. They may cost you a little bit more to run on cloud platform than they would to, to run on premises. But uh, if they're the laggards or they're the, the leftovers after you've sort of figured out what you can really replatform or refactor, then you don't want to let them stop you if you're if you're going all in on a on a cloud migration strategy but i would say it's you know i'm of the opinion that that should be your fallback position that if you you could you need to lift and shift the stuff that it just doesn't make sense to replatform or refactor or rehost today and and really the the folks that are just saying hey i've got a benediction i'm going to public cloud i'm going to lift and shift everything i feel like they're doing themselves a disservice because there's a whole lot of risk associated with a move like that, even though it is just a lift and a shift. And you don't get any of the benefits of the platform when you migrate using that method. Yeah, If you're going to go through the risky exercise anyway, then you should make the attempt to do it right and go, I was going to say cloud native, though I'm, I'm just, it's one of those terms. I'm not sure what it means anymore, but just uh, yeah, but take advantage of the platform in that native way using the services that are there. You've got risk. You're dealing with, with a risky scenario no matter what you do. So you might as well go all in and do it right. Absolutely. And I mean, you, you've still got a sunk cost in the infrastructure that's on premises today. And I get it that a lot of these folks have some 
executive direction that they're going to move everything to a cloud platform by X date or whatever. But if you've still got maintenance on that on-prem stuff, you've still got a team that has the knowledge, you've still got a, you know, a lease on a facility to run it in, and you've got a subset of your apps that are going to get sunsetted or flipped over to PaaS or uh, SaaS or whatever in the not-so-distant future, then why even bother putting the effort into moving them when you can let them just age off and then flip over to this new consumption model or this new platform down the road when it makes a little bit more sense? So this is... This is the big consulting companies really, if they, if they come in and they do a true application assessment and they really do a dependency map and they truly put the effort into giving you a good roadmap of what you should move, how and why, they do provide value. I mean, uh, I've seen a lot of folks try and lift and shift everything. And those are the folks that, you know, the hardware company site is examples for people that are pulling out of cloud. They're pulling out of cloud not because the platform is bad, but because they've chosen to consume it in an illogical manner. Yeah, even the U.S. federal government has uh, changed their their branding on some of the cloud work they're doing from cloud first to cloud smart, and it's kind of an admission of that. You know, it's not just cram everything in the cloud and yay. It's more like, hey, let's look at it. Let's see what we got. Let's let's leverage our community and our partners and our internal talent. Figure out what should be there, not uh, not just default everything to it. So it's kind of a bonus round here. Then article came out from uh, Jesse Frizzell called Defining a Distinguished Engineer. And since this is an opinionated, cloudy journey uh, for you know this show, I thought I'd, I'd look at one of the quotes there and, and get your opinions on it, the two of you. Uh, and in this article, which, by the way, fantastic. We'll have a link in the show notes. It says, a technical leader should be able to have strong opinions loosely held on designs and architecture. They do not need to have opinions on everything because that would be pedantic. What do we think? You know, any any folks that you've worked for that are counter to this, that have frustrated you, or do you believe in this? And just want to get your thoughts, the two of you. You know, loosely held is absolutely a critical feature of anyone who's in a leadership position. Uh, when you are subjected to new information, um, and in technology, that's going to happen all the time because technology changes, and a new information is coming to light as as products develop, as new projects are released, and so on. You have to have a loosely held opinion and the the ability to be swayed when um, the landscape changes. Um, that that's that's necessary. And it's also if we just back away from the technology aspect of it, uh, being having a loosely held opinion, one that is that can be swayed, means you're a reasonable person. If you have an opinion, never change it. You're not a reasonable person, and probably shouldn't be in leadership because you're going to be a very difficult person to work with. As far as having opinions on everything. I don't think in the technological landscape that's even possible anymore, uh, and nor would you want to have to study everything so deeply that you have an opinion on everything. It's pedantic and also impractical. Uh, an engineer who's leading in a specific technological area would need to have leadership for things they have the time and expertise uh, to really go deep on, and the rest, maybe they don't have to have an opinion. I think you know, <laughs> knowledge of something is fine, but a deep opinion, not necessary. Except for VI versus Emacs, you need a very strong. I mean, opinion. obviously, obviously, you need to understand why VI is vastly superior. That's that's yeah. a critical feature of any distinguished. <laughs> but but totally, actually, great answer. And I, Bill, I'm curious your your thoughts on this quote. Yeah, so I've I've got some interesting perspective on it because uh, I. You know, I spent some time in the military, and uh, one of the mistakes that young leaders in the military make is thinking that they need to know everything and, and that their decision needs to be based on their knowledge and that they are always right. And young leaders very quickly learn that when you adopt that model, uh, you're destined for failure. And so I would say 
that loosely held opinions is a great way of framing it. By the way, huge uh, Jesse Frizzell fan. Love the example. Loosely held opinions is a, is a great way to frame it. I would frame it also maybe in terms of principles, right? Guiding principles that sort of shape your leadership style. I, I think that one of the best things a leader can do, especially a leader who steps into a new role, is sit back and learn and listen and sort of get an assessment of the situation before you ever interject an opinion or guidance. And that is because that the reason that you're a leader is based on experience. And we as human beings have new experiences every single day. And we just talked about how fast the technological market shifts and ebbs and flows and mutates. And so it's almost impossible, unless you're stepping into a situation where you are a leader in a very specific subject that you have large amounts of experience in, that, uh, that you are going to make the right decision 100% of the time. Even given those assumptions, you're not going to make the right decision 100% of the time. And so I think that leveraging your experience to try and avoid mistakes that you might not foresee uh, definitively from a technical perspective is a very, very valid and important way to lead. But I, I, think, I think more so, it's really about listening and surveying sort of the landscape of the decision that needs to be made, uh, taking input from whatever members of the team have input to provide, and then synthesizing all of these facts into the most educated decision that you can make. I think that's the real cornerstone of a strong leader is somebody, somebody that listens, somebody that learns, somebody that weighs you know, the benefits and costs of the decision that they're about to make, and then that just tries to use their experience and those inputs to, to produce the best possible decision that they can. And being willing to admit that you make mistakes and that you make the wrong decision sometimes and identify that and course correct as quickly as you can is also another really, really valid element of being a strong leader. Well, Bill, the insights have been fantastic. Thank you for joining us to talk about your opinions in the cloud. Uh, for those that want to carry the conversation forward after listening to the show, where can they reach out to you on the interwebs or social or whatnot? Yeah, so I have a blog. It is at http colon slash slash blog dot bill dash girling.com so b-i-l-l and then a hyphen g-u-r-l-i-n-g.com it's woefully out of date so uh this this should be a good motivator to have me post some updated content there and then uh i'm on twitter i'm at v dingus v-d-i-n-g-u-s um and uh I'm, I'm also a cloud solutions architect at rubric so you can always get get through to me through rubric channels if uh if you're engaged uh, with Rubrik in any way, shape, or form, feel free to reach out and, and talk cloud. I, I love hearing about what c customers and prospects and just interested folks are doing, and I love to chat. So I appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you so much. Sweet. All right, everybody. That's it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. If you're a social creature, you can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter, and my blog is wallnetwork.com, or my delightful friend here, Ethan. He's at ECBanks on Twitter, and he's blogging over at packetpushers.net. For more of our Data Not shows about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You're going to find us talking about containers, conferences, cloud, moving to cloud, certs, full stack engineering. There's a long list of things that we've made just for you. And until then, may your server lights blink, your cloud templates be groovy, and your cables be cleanly managed.